Welcome to 4D. Deep dive into degenerative diseases. Gaining insights through casual and amusing clinical conversations. Good evening, everybody, and welcome to 4D, a podcast brought to you by the Degenerative Disease Special Interest Group of the Academy of Neurologic Physical Therapy, a component of the APTA. The information in this podcast is meant for the benefit of physical therapists. It is not meant for personal medical diagnosis or treatment. Individuals should always consult an appropriate medical practitioner with questions. I'm Herb Kapatkin. I'm an associate professor in the physical therapy department at Hunter College in New York City. I'm also the chair of the nominating committee of the Degenerative Disease Special Interest Group, and I'm very excited to be here today with Dr. Jake Sosnoff. Um, Jake, I want to really thank you for joining us. I'm very excited to have this conversation with you. Why don't you go ahead and introduce yourself? Sure. Thanks. I'm really glad to be here. Um, thanks again for the invitation. Um, I am a professor in physical therapy, rehab science, and athletic training at the University of Kansas Medical Center. Um, and I'm also, I have the privilege of serving as the associate dean for research in the School of Health Professions. Uh, I think, unlike most of your guests here, I'm not a physical therapist. Um, you know, as my parents like to point out, I'm not a real doctor. Um, and, you know, part of it, I've been studying mobility and mobility impairment for essentially my career. I grew up in a family of orthotist prosthetists. So my grandfather and father were artificial limb make, makers, and I was exposed to impaired gait from a very early age. I didn't know it was odd to have fake legs in the back of your station wagon until I went to public school. That was my normal. Um, and despite my parents telling me to go do whatever I wanted to do, I ended up studying what my my family business was. So I've been measuring or um, studying mobility uh, and gait impairment. I actually was trained as a theoretical motor control um, researcher. I was doing that um, very early in my career. I had some personal challenges and realized I wanted my work to be much more applied and actually help people and be read by more than just my advisor and um, other folks in that in that small world. Uh, so I was given the opportunity to work uh, with people with multiple sclerosis on balance impairment and gait issues. And I've been doing that um, since I think 2006. Uh, so it, it's been great. I've, I've learned quite a bit from um, working with this fabulous community. All right, well, Jake, um, the fact that you're not a physical therapist is actually one of the things that makes this podcast with you so interesting um, because you are a researcher with a uh, very strong uh, agenda for working with mobility problems with persons with multiple sclerosis as well as older adults. And I am a physical therapist and also a kind of a researcher on the side. And I really want to have two primary topics that I want to speak with you about today. The first is a very general topic, and that is, what do you think, as a researcher, physical therapists should be doing more of? Um, physical therapy makes a big impetus towards being evidence-based. Um, how should we be doing more of that? Can we be doing a better job of that? That's the general question. A more specific question, and one I think we want to start off with, is the issue of frailty. I've noticed that. Many of your, much of your recent work 
has been on frailty and multiple sclerosis. That is, those are both big areas of interest for me. Um, frailty is something that is growing in awareness as an area where physical therapists can intervene in older adults. As an MS specialist, I too have noticed that a lot of the frailty I see in my older adults' patients are very similar, is very similar to the frailty that I see in persons with MS. So my first question to you to start us off is just that. Frailty is a term that's customarily been associated with older adults in the literature and in clinical practice. How, in your opinion, did it come to be used in multiple sclerosis? Yeah. Um, so thanks and uh, for that, that wonderful question. So, you know, as you said, the traditional approach and view of frailty is a, as a geriatric sy syndrome. And if we look at the definition of frailty itself, it's a decline in multiple physiological systems. Um, often it's thought of as an end stage of the life of the physiological process of life. Um, so, you know, that is just a classic definition. When we're looking at people, you know, are they ready for surgery? Often they'll look to see if someone's frail to make sure it's a, an appropriate treatment. Um, but we look at that physiological dysfunction across multiple systems, and we look at what's what multiple sclerosis is. If we look, you know, it's a neurodegenerative disease that has symptoms across or symptoms characteristic of impairment in multiple systems. There's a nice overlap between those two um, constructs. You know, how do we look at frailty? You know, how do we look at frailty in, in um, these clinical populations? You know, MS isn't, um, unlike some other neurodegenerative diseases, isn't an, a disease or a pathology of the aged, right? It's not a disease that necessarily impacts older adults, although obviously it can. We usually get diagnosed younger, about 20, 25 is, is um, you know, average onset. But it, people live with it. You know, one really great improvement we've had um, in multiple sclerosis in the last I don't know, 10, 20 years uh, is improvement in disease modifying therapies. So now we're in this wonderful position that people are living longer with the disease and actually hitting old age. I think another aspect to come up um, is a lot of our measures of disability, disability progression and multiple sclerosis are insensitive to change. So, you know, one of the, the classic, you know, and I know you, you know this, we're forced to use it in a lot of our publications. Um, the classic is the, the uh, expanded disability status score, the EDSS. And, you know, it's an okay score, but it's really not sensitive. You know, once you start losing impairment and gait, um, you're stuck, you know, you start using bilateral support. I believe it's a, a six and a half wheelchair, using a wheelchair is seven. You know, there's a lot of um, non you know, it's not sensitive to any change there. I think a lot of times it's based on self-report as opposed to objective assessment. Um, although, you know, ideally we're, they're measuring it. But um, so I think that measure of disability isn't sensitive to change. So looking at measures of frailty um, and different measures of frailty, trying to understand how that can change in individuals with multiple sclerosis was an interesting research question. I was fortunate to have a um, postdoc, uh, he's now an assistant professor, uh, Dr. Toby Zanato, um, who actually has expertise in frailty. And it was one of these ideas that he had this expertise in frailty and we had expertise in MS. And that research just grew out of that, you know, bringing um, two skill sets together. And it seems to have blossomed quite a bit. So 
that brings me to my next question. Um, and that is, do you feel that the frailty that is associated with older adults is different somehow than the frailty associated with persons with MS? Excellent question. If we look at the data out there, the answer is I have no clue. Like we're, we're still, you know, picking it apart. Um, you know, realistically, the literature on multiple sclerosis and frailty is in its infancy. I think there's maybe a dozen papers out there um, and a decent portion are my own, which, you know, I don't, I like my work, but I need more people to do this, to do this, to figure out if this is something. Um, you know, one thing I, I failed to mention that I think is, is interesting is, you know, with this accumulation deficit model, um, and it's Rockwood Frailty Index is the, the approach we take. We are actually, we see distinction between individuals that are non-ambulatory. So we had this interesting data set. Um, I think it was about 35, 40 individuals who are non-ambulatory. So again, if we're looking at, you know, the expanded disability status scale, they all have a score of seven, um, right? And it's a relatively non-sensitive score at that point uh, or measure. Um, with the frailty index, we're able to show that there's a spread of frailty. So you can think of it, one way to think of it is health, right? So there's actually, and we know this, you know, you know, this is a clinician, two people, just because they happen to be using a power chair or a scooter, there's different levels of function and health in there. Um, so we're able to show a spread, which I think was very interesting in that population. And not only that, we were able to show that the people that were more frail were also more likely to have a history of falls in the fall in the future. So we're actually able to show some of those clinical connections um, in you know, a non-ambulatory population. So sometimes the hardest population to get some measurement um, variation in. So we thought that was really interesting. Um, but what, you know, is there a pathological or pathophysiological, is the mechanism different in individuals with multiple sclerosis and older adults? We really don't know that. But, you know, one thing that I think is incredibly interesting, um, and when we, you know, we cite this paper, it's from the Biobank in the UK, it's on, I think it's 15,000 people who, you know, essentially, um, you know, provide measures of, of physiological function. Um, Individuals with MS were the most likely to be frail in that population. They're 15 times more likely to be frail than age-matched um, counterparts. So it, it's a very prevalent condition in individuals with MS, but we don't know necessarily at this point what's driving it. You know, and that's the research that you know myself, my group with Dr. Zanotto, that's what we're trying to look at. You know, first we started trying to build the evidence base. Um, we know that they're frail. We've shown that in a couple of different studies, shown that um, it relates to clinical adverse outcomes like falls. Uh, we just had a paper come out showing it just relates to physical act activity in the community. You know, not surprisingly, people that are, are frail almost by definition are going to be less active. Um, so that that maps, um, you know, the, so I think there's a couple different questions we have to continue to pursue building up this evidence base, you know, for physical therapists. I think this is essential. Um, are there different drivers? So we want to reduce a frailty in somebody, make someone less frail. What markers do we look at? Um, you know, or what markers do we target with the strategy? I think that needs to be determined, understand. Um, and then how do we how do we do that? Um, that's, I think, the, the driving factor. And then that leads into the second part of your question is how do we measure it, 
right? So um, there's a multiple tool, like the, the, the benefit of looking at a construct that's been in existence um, in the geriatric literature for decades is there's a lot of different ways to measure. The freed phenotype, very classic definition of fail, frailty. There's five markers and I'm gonna do my best to remember them, but I might need help. So um, this might be the audience interaction. You guys can all laugh at me. Um, but there's declines in, in muscle strength. There's low gait speed, exhaustion, weight loss, and then low energy expenditure. So, you know, those are the, the beauty of that is you can measure those relatively quick in a in an office, you know, in a clinic and know, you know, someone has three of the five markers. You can say that they're frail based on the, that phenotype. It's very well studied. It's great. My concern with it is it's um, almost too gross of a measure and not sensitive to change. Or you're, it's going to take a while to change that gross of a measure. And if we're trying to, if one of the motivations is to improve on measures of disability, such as the EDSS within multiple sclerosis, using such a, a broad um, brush stroke might not be solving that problem. There, you know, the other thing we mentioned is the frailty index, a, a, um, a deficit accumulation model, which essentially looks at, um, I think the, the guidelines say you should look at 40 different aspects of health. So we can think of it as 40 different measures. You want a variety of health measures in there. Um, so if we think of, of impairment or health as a multimodal, multi-component aspect, it's building off that. It and you know you sum your score. There's you know some um, great work by um, great work trying to figure out how to do that. Um, you know again that's Dr. Zanato, Toby Zanato's specialty, um, and we found it to be you know again relatively robust um, and sensitive to some clinical outcomes within MS across the majority of the spectrum of individuals with multiple sclerosis. Um, so you know I, then there's other measures. There's the frail scale. Um, you know, which is a, get a essentially a self-report measure. Um, it looks at it, it. That's actually built off the freed phenotype, but it looks at things like muscle strength. It has can you walk up um, ten steps without support? Can you walk four hundred feet or around? You know, can you walk a block without support without stopping? It measures like that. Um, so those are are great measures. I think we're still trying to figure out um, what's the best measurement measure the use from a research, from a clinical um, side, what's going to be sensitive. I think there's a lot of work to be done. Um, and then, you know, with these other measure school, you know, measurements that if you, again, go back to the freed and we think of common symptoms in individuals with multiple sclerosis, there's almost an overlap. You know, if you think of an introduction paragraph in an MS paper, you know, we're going to talk about gait, we're going to talk about fatigue, um, you know, so there's a abundant reduced physical activity. Those things are going to be coming up. So you're almost, you know, you're you're tipping the scales to the free um, phenotype being there. Some of the pushback we get when we're bringing up frailty in scientific conferences and stuff is, you know, there is work that well, isn't this the same thing as comorbidities? Um, you know, that there is relationship, but I would ar argue that frailty is a different construct. And a different idea than just presence of comor comorbidities. Um, so, you know, I think, again, there's nuanced. We need to figure it out. Um, the other, sorry, the other area that um, the field needs to move into or at least understand is what are the biomarkers of frailty. Um, again, in aging, the aging geriatric literature, um, there's some markers of inflammation that seem to be worthwhile to pursue.
We don't know that within an MS cohort. We don't know how frailty changes over time. You know, clinically, I think we know if you have a 75-year-old frail older adult, you can make a pretty good prediction on what's going to happen. Well, we don't know at this point in time if you have a 50-year-old who, who has um, relapse-remitting MS and is frail, what's going to happen? We can't really make a good pr pr um, prediction. And then if you throw in, you know, progressive MS, you know, progress individuals that's frail with progressive MS, what does that mean? I don't think at this point we have the, we have the answers and, um, you know, this is what we're working on right now. So, you know, five, 10 years from now, I'm happy to come back and tell you what we found. Um, not sure I can wait that long, but I'll... <laughs> I'll come back sooner. Okay. Um, let's talk about uh, that issue of comorbidity. Um, and I, I could see why people would think is, is frailty sort of the same thing as a comorbidity. And I could understand why they would ask that question. A definition of frailty that I like is an inability to tolerate stressors. Mm -hmm. I want to, however, segue into what can we do as PTs? And for me, and I'd like you to comment on this, for me as a clinician, part of working with somebody who's frail, whether they are an older adult or someone with MS or a, an older adult who has MS, is to determine what part of the frailty, the slow gait speed, the weakness is due to deconditioning and what is due to the disease itself? To what extent is it reversible? Is it a one-way ticket? My experience as a clinician so far has been in many cases it's not because most of the frail people I've met, not all, but most, are there's always a component of, of deconditioning. I'm wondering if you could perhaps comment on that idea in some of the work and some of the work you're hopefully planning on and doing in the future. Thank you for that, that bringing up that definition. Um, again, looking at how people respond to stressors or the lack of the ability, um, you know, a term that's been some of my colleagues here at, at Kansas use is the idea of, of resilience. Yes. So, and again, it's a geriatric, it's traditionally been in the geriatrics, but I think we can apply it with MS relatively well. So, um, you know, and obviously if we think of relapses, you can think of someone has, you know, uh, um, a flare-up of MS, a pathology, and then they recover from that. How well do they recover that from that? You know, that's almost a classic definition of resilience. And we can start looking at frailty as when we're not able to recover. So I think that definition of re response to stressor makes a lot of sense. And I know you had another question. To what extent is frailty reversible? And yep. what I was stating was that to the extent that the frailty is due to secondary issues due to inactivity, disuse atrophy, learned helplessness, et cetera. My experience is that to a large extent it is reversible. And the way I know it's reversible in my patients is that they can tolerate greater amounts of stress. That the um, one of my patients actually who um who I saw last week refers to himself as now I feel adventure ready, that I can take on hard things when before I wouldn't. Right. Um, right. So um yeah, no, I, I think you're you're exactly right. It's, you know, I think that's the question. Is it is frailty and MS modifiable? And even in the geriatric literature, there's still an ongoing debate. Um, and, you know, there's some caveats that if you're changing it, it's not really frailty. Um, that's it's like a straw man that you can't really fight against. Um, 
you know, it's, it's sort of an untestable hypothesis there. <laughs> we have some data, secondary analysis, one of the interventions that we did where um, we haven't presented it, so I don't want to give it too much, you know, too much play, um, but we're able to improve the frailty index. Um, and again, there's published cutoffs from the geriatric literature, and we're, we're going above that with a relatively straightforward, simple um, exercise intervention. So we're, we're optimistic that we're going to be able to, to improve frailty and MS. Um, and again, looking at the questions of the pathophysiology, is it different than uh, frailty in older adults? We're going to hopefully start to be able to pick that apart. When I look at the freed frailty index and I see slow gait speed, you know, as a PT, it's like, well, I can work with that. Yep. When I see somebody who has poor strength, well, I can I can work with that. Yep. When I see somebody who's complaints of fatigue, you know, I can work with that. So um, that straw man argument you brought up is uh, is uh, an argument I'd love to have with anybody at this point. But yep. um, let so but let me try to pigeonhole you a little bit more. If a physical therapist came up to you and said, Doctor Sosnoff, I a patient with MS who's presenting as frail, you know, where, where, given the research, what do you think I ought to be doing with him? Because based on the straw man argument, we should only be giving palliative care, which is, you know, to me, unacceptable. Right, um, right. So, yeah, my, I think my initial response, and, you know, I'm not saying this tongue in cheek, is what do you mean by frailty? You know, how frail are they? How do we quantify that, right? Um, but I think from a clinical care point, I think it's the points you just raised. I think, you know, increasing muscle strength is going to only be beneficial. Um, you know, if they're still ambulatory, it's helping, you know, maximize the ambulation, um, you know, balance exercises, leg strength, gait retraining. Um, you know, one of my favorites is, you know, again, because of MS pathology is looking at their ability to multitask or dual task and train that up. Um I think all of those are going to be beneficial. Um, you know, I think if we do a, you know, a, a scoping review of the MS PT um, interventions, they're essentially all the interventions are beneficial. There's very little data out there that says you can improve somebody with MS um, if you have a well-designed targeted intervention. Now, I know, you know, if we're looking for, um, you know, randomized controlled trials, sometimes the argument is that, you know, the randomized controlled trials, that data, that evidence level is not there. Um, I think that's a problem that pay, plagues rehab rehabilitation um, a little bit more than it should. I think there's benefits. A lot of the data suggests that a walking regime is probably just as good as a strength training regime um, for, you know, for overall health. And I think that's, again, I think that's really what we should be targeting is overall health, not a specific, you know, particular um, movement or a particular um, you know, muscle group. I think it's that overall health that's really going to be benefit the patient. Well, if I could uh, continue with that, what exactly do you mean when you say overall health? Um, because I would, I would think if if a patient comes to me with trouble walking, I will see mm -hmm. why are they having trouble walking, and that's what we work on. It's very targeted. It won't be geared specifically towards wellness, although the patient may become weller or healthier as a result. But um, an issue that a lot of my colleagues have is that if they look, if too much of exercise is thought of in this sort of generic way, um, 
uh, not targeted sort of generalized fitness, generalized wellness, generalized conditioning. It makes somebody healthier, perhaps, but doesn't really work at a task specific level. So when you say yeah. overall health, I'd like to hear more. Yeah, about I, I think. And again, I, I'm speaking from a non clinical background. So when I say overall health, um, I mean, you know, encompassing the whole individual. Um, so, you know, I would argue too. you know, the, the example you gave of someone who's um, you improve their walking, if they're still fearful of activity, um, if they're still, you know, that. So have you gotten their their gait pattern better? I, you know, I know you're an excellent therapist. I know you've done a really good job. I know they're stronger. I know their gait's better. But if we don't look at that fear, let's say fear of activity, fear of falling, activity curtailment, we don't look at that, that piece. I think we're still, you know, you're you're limiting it, or that person has, you know, anxiety and depression. And again, I understand with the clinical silos, we might not be there. You know, I have a um, great colleague here at Kansas, um, Katie Sigason, who does work on sleep. You know, if someone's not sleeping well, the fact that their gait pattern is better, you know, they might be tripping and falling, not because their gait patterns impaired, although it might be. It's because they haven't been able to sleep well because of some other issues, right? So when I say wellness, it's really pulling that all of that apart with the understanding um, current models right now are not, we're not necessarily trained, and this is across the board in, in health professions, we're not trained to treat necessarily the health, right? We're as, as much as we should be. Um, you know, and I think another piece that, I think is getting um, getting some buzz, but isn't quite where it needs to be is the nutritional piece. So again, if we're trying to increase people's strength, how much um, you know protein do they need to, to gain muscle mass? Right. So I think you know again when I'm trying to talk about that, you know that the whole the whole person, I think that that builds up. And we look at you know most of the successful frailty interventions in geriatrics, they tend to be these multi-component aspects. It's not just, you know, gait training and not just nutrition. It's when you put those together, right? That's where I think, you know, with, with counseling or, you know, other matters to, to get the depression under control. I think that's where we see these significant changes in, in well-being. Um, Jake, you brought up a really great point a couple seconds ago, which I want to go back to. And that is we can help somebody's gait quite a bit but if they still are afraid to walk, if they still have what we might refer to as voluntary activity restriction, um, uh, all the best PT in the world isn't going to make a bit of difference. To what extent do you believe that that is the factor in frailty in persons with multiple sclerosis? Um, and have you have you looked into that in any of your work? So I think, again, I, I really appreciate talking to you. Because that's a wonderful question. It's a wonderful insight. I think for some individuals, it's probably a driving factor. Is that fear? Um, you know, I'm I'm afraid that I'm going to have a bout of fatigue if I do too much, especially with MS. I'm going to become too exhausted, so I'm not going to go out. Well, we know from a physiological perspective, if you don't do anything, your ability to do anything gets you know smaller and smaller. Um, so it, it's a self-fulfilling prophecy. I think that happens quite a bit. Um, you know, and again, I think because of the silos of, of rehabilitation of, of health professions, 
we of allied health, whatever term you want to use, we're not overly always well equipped to, to deal with that. Um, you know, and again, I think, you know, I, I don't want to get too much on the, on, on this, but I think the way reimbursement works probably doesn't help us. You know, we train people like you were talking about gate patterns, you know, often we train people in the clinic cause that's where we are. Well, you know, I know you're at Hunter College and you have wonderful facilities, so people might live in your clinic. But for the most of the time, we train the people in the clinic and then they go home and work in the real world, right? So, you know, I, I think another place that we have to get better at is understanding what do we have to do in the clinic to have that translate to the real world, right? And, you know, I'll pick up my own work. You know, for a while, we were doing some dual task, you know, counting backwards by seven is the classic one. I can guarantee you that no one counts backwards by sevens in the room, except for, you know, maybe my former advisor because he was really good at it. But, you know, that I think, you know, looking at how people function in the real world should be our goal. And we often, for various legitimate reasons, don't get there um, in clinical and research. I think it's a it's a it's a gap in the field that we should try to address. Yeah, I I Really appreciate that point, and I want to give a bit of a shout out for PTs to be doing more home care because it's it's an opportunity to see somebody in their natural habitat, so to speak, and not in the linoleum world of a clinic or a hospital. Okay, so Jake, if you had one thing to say to physical therapists who work with persons with MS or who work with frail older adults, um, what as a researcher, you know, what's your pet peeve, if you will, what um, uh, I know generally PTs do not pay enough attention to research. I know the APTA and particularly the Academy of Neurologic Physical Therapy is working hard to change that. So before I get on my soapbox about it, I'm going to give you a chance to get on yours. So I think my first point is, is is PT should be working. This is just in general. So I, I want to, PT should be working with individuals with multiple sclerosis and frail older adults. And I think that in itself would be a change. I think more often than not, and again, I, I think people look at individuals with MS, especially with pro progressed disability or advanced disability, and they think it's a lost cause. And frail older adults are in the same, the same boat. Um, you know, and I talking to students that's, you know, that they don't think they can help that person. I think those are the people that you can help the most. Cause I, again, back to an earlier point that you brought up, I think there's a lot of secondary deconditioning that's going on, um, in these advanced cases. Not always. I think, you know, I think you need to, you need to use your clinical judgment to figure out what those cases are. But I, for the most part, I think you can get a bigger bang for your buck and have a better increase in the quality of life in those more advanced cases. Or, you know, there's a good segment. We stop, in some ways we stop too early. Um, we don't, you know, we don't do it. Again, you know, I don't want to get into like the insurance models versus other, other systems, but, you know, there are other systems out there that people with MS get six weeks of inpatient care like every other year or every year. We're nowhere close to that. You get it, you know, if something happens, you might get some physical therapy. Um, so I would argue that working with individuals with advanced impairment is really beneficial to them. And then I would also argue it's really, at least for me, and I think, you know, I want to claim I might be somewhat normal, um, helping individuals that need that help is also incredibly rewarding. 
What are your thoughts about, particularly in these, uh, in some of the more advanced cases, there's a bias that I sometimes feel from caregivers, from patients, et cetera, to not push them too hard. And to be honest, my feeling has always been we probably don't push hard enough. Yeah, you know, I, I think I think another way to look at this or another way I frame the question is what's the dose response, right, of, of the exercise, of the rehabilitation? And I think, unfortunately, we don't have the answer right now. You know, but if there are students listening, I think this is a prime area to investigate, to understand what we should be doing for who. You know, most of the work, you know, Herb, you know this, but most of the work we know about rehabilitation and MS still is the people that have minimal impairment. Like that's the bulk of the work is people, you know, who have some, some impairment. Right. Um, and that's great. They're incredibly, that's, you know, by all means we should be working there, but we should be working in the whole spectrum of, of function. I think there's a lot of benefit to work across the spectrum and figure out where we can look at, um, you know, and again, you know, I just want to I want to give a shout out to Dr. Laura Rice and her team who's working on, you know, rehabilitation in the, the most advanced care, you know, non-ambulatory individuals with MS looking at can we prevent falls and how do we improve function there? Because, you know, five years ago, 10 years ago, we didn't even bother considering people. Um, you know, we've had conversations about this. Someone gets in a chair and everyone's happy because they think they're not going to fall. And we know that not to be true. Um, they just at best they're falling from three feet versus five feet. All right. I've been told I need to ask you the question of uh, when you're not doing groundbreaking multiple sclerosis and frailty research, what do you do for fun? As of now, so I'm a dad of three. So my fun is, you know, besides being a dad, um, my my one guilty pleasure, pleasure right now is pickleball. So I've, I've Join the craze of pickleballness. Um, I'm not very good, although my wife and I did win the beginner league, and that might be the top of my abilities because I moved up to the intermediate league, and I am not going to win for a very long time. Um, so I play. I was going to say I even play old people's games. That's pretty much what I do in my spare time. Perhaps you should try physical therapy. I hear that helps some people. <laughs> You know, I, I've avoided major injuries so far, but I'm sure I'll be there before we know it. Great. I want to thank everybody who's listening for joining us today. I want to give special thanks to Dr. Sosnoff for uh, his work that he's done for talking with us today. And I'm really looking forward to the work that comes from him and his team in the future on frailty and MS. Definitely. Thank you so much for having me. And I look forward to seeing everybody. This podcast was produced and edited by the Academy of Neurologic Physical Therapy Generative Disease Special Interest Group podcast team. For more information on the Special Interest Group and the ANPT, you can visit neuropt.org. Our podcast team includes Sarah Zoller, Katie McGraw, Christina Burke, Ken Donato, Shannon Brown, Jeff Schmidt, Carm Paget, and I am Herb Karpatkin. Thanks to Jimmy McKay for providing us with music. I hope I gave you some good bloopers. I tried. <laughs> you know, I went to go see the new Indiana Jones and Hunter College. And he's a professor at Hunter College. 
where Herb is the uh, a professor. Yeah. So this is yeah. so pretty much we're talking to Indiana Jones. Yeah, um, yeah, he's based on me, and I had to work with him quite a bit, you know, to to get some of the things down. But I thought he did a decent job. Um, I don't have air conditioning, so I have a fan blowing on me. Well, all all members of the DD Sig are known for being really hot. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to go get a cold drink of water. Jake has a pickleball game to get to, so. (laughs) Colleagues and friends and family, show them how famous you are for being on a podcast. My, my, uh, one of my kids was really excited. I was on a podcast today. That was, he thought that was pretty cool. So. Nice. Thank you for letting me fulfill my kids' dreams. So. (laughs) That's what we're here. All right. Okay. Have a wonderful night. Take care. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.